The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody from New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another edition of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And today's program brings us back to one of the original topics that we had addressed when we began this series, and that is really the emergence of early civilizations, the cradles of civilizations, which are known to many people, or originally known to a lot of people, through the Indiana Jones films, and of course in your high school classes when you learned about the origins of the Egyptian civilization and uh, the Mesopotamian civilizations as well. There have been a lot of advances in both the interpretation and the explorations of the archaeology in that part of the world, uh, especially over the last 10 to 20 years when remote sensing technology became a very significant element of that kind of research. It's even more in the forefront in this day and age when an area that has very often been very turbulent is now again thrust into that type of turbulence. And I am very happy to re-examine the archaeology of that part of the world by introducing one of the premier archaeologists doing uh, state-of-the-art research in remote sensing archaeology, and that is Dr. Jason Err. Dr. Jason Err is now the John Lieb Professor, Associate Professor of the Social Sciences in the Department of Anthropology at Harvard University. He specializes in early urbanism, landscape archaeology, and remote sensing. He has directed surveys in Syria, Iraq, Turkey, and Iran, and is the author of Urbanism and Cultural Landscapes in Northeastern Syria, the Telhamukar Survey between 1999-2001, which was published in 2010, and Currently, is leading, he is leading an archaeological survey in the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq and preparing a history of Mesopotamian cities. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Jason Err. Jason, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, Joe. Jason, let's start with uh, one of the topics that most of our audience is always interested in, and how did you get into Near Eastern archaeology, which everybody's fascinated about, and then, if you would, to expand it into how you got into remote sensing and what that was about. Well, uh, I think uh, the, the inherent interest of archaeology is, is 
apparent to everybody listening to the show, or they they wouldn't be with us here this evening. But um, I have a I have a, a kind of anecdotal story. I was a student at the University of Pennsylvania, where the the archaeology museum there had a gallery called the Royal Tombs of of Ur, you know, Ur being my last name. I had a gallery with my name on it, full of shiny gold objects, and these came out of the excavations of the great third millennium BC city of 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 Ur, in, what is today in southern Iraq. So that got my attention to archaeology uh, pretty quickly. Um, really, I I, w- I just want to interrupt for a second. I thought you might have adopted that last name it, it, as a stage name. As a stage name. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a Hungarian name. Uh, I am not Sumerian. I'm I'm a little sad, sad to say. Okay. Uh, but uh, my family has also always been very interested in the past, so uh, I was predisposed to this 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 sort of thing. Uh, but I, I mean, I think that the past is fascinating, and, and certainly in the, the Near East, uh, ancient Mesopotamia, where I do my own research, so many of the elements of our own modern society had their origins. And you can think of things like uh, uh, like um, agriculture and urbanism, uh, complex society and writing and administration. Uh, these these all of these these critical elements of our own lives. First, uh, first emerged in this part of the world, and for me, it became very interesting to 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 ask why, why, why this place. And so, uh, you began your career at the uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, and then you moved on to graduate school, and you pursued this even further. Uh, it seemed uh, it seemed better than getting a real job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, but a, a lot of the the questions that I wanted to, to know about the past. Ultimately, I, I, I came to want to know, especially about cities and, and how people living in cities have modified their landscapes. And here's where the remote sensing comes into play. Uh, these are not questions that you can dig. Um, probably your listeners are well familiar with uh, excavation um, methods. You know, excavation is a, a fantastic way to learn an awful lot about a very small hole in, in an archaeological site. Uh, but what if you want to investigate um, uh, an entire city? What if you want to investigate uh, how that city is related, that ancient city is related to its surroundings did did its citizens uh, did they irrigate um, how did they move about uh, you can't dig these questions these questions require uh, other ways of interrogating the past and and stepping back is a great way to look at big picture questions and stepping back as far as space is a fantastic way to to answer these questions so when you were getting into uh, Mesopotamian archaeology, obviously some very landmark discoveries had already been made, uh, and you we're talking here a little bit about southern Mesopotamia, where the earliest city-states were had already been excavated. Many of them had been excavated and were in the process of being excavated. And of course, so uh, uh, a senior scholar, a venerated scholar, you and I both know Dr. Robert Abbott, started to putting together the geography and the distribution of these sites, their alignments along the Tigris and Euphrates River. And then we had sort of sort of a, 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 at least a, a reasonable working knowledge of how these uh, city-states merged and were connected. And that was something you already had known about, right, when you started getting into the more sophisticated types of work that you were doing. Uh, absolutely. The, the, the Near East is one of the uh, longest studied regions of, of the world, especially um, by what, what we might consider to be modern uh, archaeology as opposed to kind of antiquarianism. So uh, an awful lot is known 
uh, about particular places, and, and the city of Ur that I mentioned is a is a good case. You know, this was this was excavated uh, already in the 1920s by by British uh, by British and American archaeologists. Uh, so the the issue that um, that uh, Robert Adams you mentioned uh, what he was faced with and what what I'm also faced with is these points these points of bright knowledge where archaeologists have spent a lot of time and made great discoveries um, they didn't exist on a as islands in a, in a blank sea and and the questions that that Adams before me and and me now are asking are about how did these how did these places relate to each other and how did they relate to their environments what impacts did they have on their environments and in uh, southern Mesopotamia you know the the classic heartland of cities one of the birthplaces of civilization uh, these cities were were connected um, to their landscape through um, through water largely through through irrigation technologies which which developed in this area and that again is a is a, a very important innovation. Uh, one that drove expansion of social complexity and drove urbanism, but one that we can't dig, but one that we can investigate through through satellite imagery. When Adams was doing his work, he did do a little bit of uh, probing, and, and he certainly used as sort of his guidelines. He used a little bit of aerial survey, correct? I mean, he did use some... Uh, uh, Air, air photo flyovers from, I guess, the mid-20th century. Is that correct? He did. He did. Uh, we are talking about uh, the, the modern country of Iraq at the time that, um, that Adams and others were, were working. Um, it was very difficult to get sources like this. You know, our work benefits these regional questions that we're asking. They benefit from uh, a remote sensing perspective. But um, as uh, very often we as Americans, if we approach governments in the Middle East and we'd say, we would, could you please give me high resolution uh, satellite imagery or aerial photography of your country? You know, you will get laughed out of whatever ministry you're in. <laughs> of course. Um, you know, this, this comes because there is a history of archaeologists kind of sidelining as intelligence as intelligence officers, uh, being an archaeologist is a, is a uh, has been in the past a, a great um, a great cover in times of war, especially. So we archaeologists in some countries we don't have the greatest reputation because of things that have happened in the past. So uh, Adams had real difficulty getting these aerial photographs that, that he needed to, to do this work. And uh, when I was doing my early work in northern Mesopotamia, what is largely today Syria. I had the same problem. The Syrian government is, is, is distrustful of Americans. It will come as no surprise for me to say. Um, especially but, now. Uh, especially now. Uh, but uh, if, we can, uh, if we can move into space, we have access to imagery that are, that's not controlled by these national governments. So we, we, have, we have tools that are, are outside, of, uh, out, outside of their control. And that's... Just uh, and that's 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 where I've come to to, to satellite imagery. The, but but I am interested, and I think a lot of the people in the program uh, listenership would be very interested on when you began this, when you began your work, were you already committed to doing remote sensing, or had you developed a, a ground surface surveying methodology in advance of that, or did they both sort of intertwine into each other, and did the politics to some degree uh, sort of feed into this and, and force you, as in, in many cases it does, to revise 
revise your thinking, to revise your research plan, and to, to try something completely different. Well, in my case, uh, I started out looking at some of the earliest cities in northern Mesopotamia, in uh, the far northeastern corner of, of, of Syria. And um, I was looking at archaeological sites, which there appear as these very large uh, mounds of, uh, of former mud brick architecture that have, they've now, uh, over the past 4,000 years, they've essentially melted into uh, piles of mud. Uh, but um, the, the, the archaeologist that I, I trained under, a man named Tony Wilkinson, he had noticed that a lot of these features were connected by, um, a lot of these sites were connected by shallow linear features that, that he interpreted as trackways, as former trackways. Um, they were maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe 100 to 200 feet across and, and really only a few feet deep. So very broad, very shallow, but lining up between them. Uh, and I got very interested in this, and I wanted to know more about this. But these are bloody hard to see on the ground, um, but not from space. And this is about the time that the United States uh, declassified the first generation of its spy satellites. This, these were images that were taken in, uh, in the 1960s, mostly, and they were declassified in the, in the mid-1990s. And uh, I turned my attention to these to look at these at these ancient roads running running between these archaeological sites, and this this turned out to be an absolute goldmine for me. And how did you get started with it? I mean, you uh, in terms of the technical files, you actually went to uh, declassified government repositories and simply made a Freedom of Information request. Is that how that worked? This is how it worked, I, I suppose. Prior to um, uh, the internet age, but um, to the to the great credit of um, of our intelligence services and and, and the U.S. Geological Survey, when uh, this declassification happened, uh, the images were all released to the the United States Geological Survey, who put it up on a website. So you can preview these images, and then you can. You can you can buy them, and in some cases you can just download them for free. So it's a lot easier than the old days of freedom of, of information requests, which first of all is is um, is wonderful for us archaeologists because we don't have a, a whole lot of money. Uh, also, they've been made available by the USGS for for a negligible amount uh, under the uh, premise that we've already paid for these images in the form of our tax dollars in the 1960s. So they are now being returned to uh, not just American taxpayers, but to, to citizens of the world um, for use as historical and, and environmental and, and even archaeological research. And we will be back with our special guest, Dr. Jason Orr from Harvard University, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective. Your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. 
Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are discussing the innovations and the methodological advances that have been made in the area of remote sensing uh, technology in archaeology. Um, and that's a mouthful, I understand. But we are talking about uh, how the remote sensing method allows archaeologists to establish bird's eye views, if you will, of, of the geography of ancient sites, ancient landscapes, if you will, with uh, Dr. Jason Err, who is a specialist in northern Mesopotamian archaeology and specifically in uh, the development and evolution of some of the earlier city-states. And uh, as many of you have know from an earlier program that we did, uh, the relationship between these city-states, uh, certainly along the lower drainages of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, uh, gave rise to the, uh, to the civilization in southern Iraq. And Jason has extended that study into northern Mesopotamia, the areas of Syria and Turkey, and he had been discussing how some features that were described as tracks and pathways were uh, sort of raised and uh, brought into some prominence by a previous uh, archaeologist named uh, Tony Wilkinson, and uh, Jason has gone into satellite imagery, declassified satellite imagery, to identify what these features were and what they meant in terms of trying to assemble the various sites along that part of the uh, northern Mesopotamia area into some kind of a coherent picture. Jason, why don't you uh, continue with that discussion and tell us how you were able to identify what these trackways might have been and how they sort of formed a, co- a more uh, comprehensive picture of how sites were aligned. Sure, sure. Well, uh, when um, the when these these spy satellite images were first declassified, um, you know my uh, you know, the the research team that I was a part of at the University of Chicago was quick to, to quick to put in orders, and when the imagery arrived. We're very happy to pour over them, and we were looking for places that we already knew on the ground. We knew we were looking for these these early cities that showed up as mounds, and on the image we could tell they were mounds because 
it's the northern hemisphere. They had shadows on the north side, and they were illuminated on the south side. But uh, we we found that surrounding them were radiating dark lines across the, across agricultural fields. Uh, these lines, uh, well, we weren't exactly sure what was causing them to look dark on the image, but eventually we figured out it was because they were depressed and they were collecting water, uh, promoting the growth of vegetation a little bit more. And as we looked, looked uh, as we pulled back, we saw more and more how closely all of these places were articulated in what was an absolute hypnotic web of of, of lines and covering, covering the entire region. Ultimately, we were able to map about uh, over 6,000 kilometers of, of these trackways in what has to be the best preserved ancient landscape um, in, in, uh, in, the, in the ancient Near East. I mean, we're talking about a, a landscape of movement that's 4,500 years old. And these trackways, how wide were they? How deep were they? Was there any uniformity to them? Um, can you tell us about that? Well, they were remarkably wide. Uh, they were um, pushing 200 feet wide in, in some cases, uh, uh, about uh, up, up to maybe three or four feet deep at their, at their greatest. So these are very broad uh, and, and shallow features across the landscape. And this is probably because in addition to people walking to and from these early cities. Uh, we're also seeing disturbance caused by their animals. Uh, we know that these early cities, and you know, we think we know about cities, and we think that uh, cities are places that are defined by maybe an absence of farmers and herders, but that was not the case in, uh, in third millennium BC Mesopotamia, where these cities, these were cities of, of, of farmers and herders. So I think what we're seeing are these giant trackways of farmers going out to their fields, but also herders taking their animals out. And um, sometimes flocks are not known for, for perfect single file behavior. And I think what we're seeing here is the width comes from very large flocks of sheep moving in and out of, uh, out of these cities, leaving, uh, literally etching, etching their movements into the landscape in a way that survived for uh, almost five millennium. And so these are basically the initial commercial arteries connecting uh, central places or connecting areas of uh, of commerce and uh, and mobility. Well, in some cases, these are these are connections between places. But we we scratched our heads for a little while because for every track that went from one archaeological site to another, there would be three or four that just radiated out from a site and then seemed to fade away, roads to nowhere. Um, we scratched our heads about this for a while and, until we, we finally figured out that these roads, they weren't going nowhere. They were going out into the, the fields. So for most of the inhabitants of these, of these early cities, this would have been the paths of their daily lives to going from their houses in the settlements out into, out into their fields to do their cultivation and ultimately returning, uh, re returning uh, back in at the end of the day. So what we're seeing in these, these radiating lines around the sites are, are the former field systems that sustain these early cities. So you're getting some critical information on commercial organization and subsistence patterns and how life really was undertaken in these various areas, right? Well, one thing we came away from uh, after having mapped out all these trackways, if we assume that the, the tracks are running through the fields, just how many fields there were, almost every inch of the space in between these 
these settlements would have been would have been cultivated. Now this shouldn't come as a surprise. After all, these are this is an this is an urban uh, hint, hinterlands here. Uh, but uh, it was clear that in looking at this landscape of 4,500 years ago, we were seeing uh, a level of settlement and intensity that hadn't been superseded until very late in the 20th century A.D. So this was really a high point that vanished for for 4,000 years or more. And I, um, I guess one of the real curious questions that I think a lot of people would have is now that you've really started to discover this very, very critical element of the ancient landscape, is your first, or uh, I guess this might be just, just sort of a, a sequencing question, do you just go ahead and start mapping them willy-nilly and just trying to get the general pat- pattern or are you already starting to formulate some synthetic ideas on what lifeways were like and even greater, more far-reaching questions as to why they flourished when they did and why they eventually disappeared? I mean, how, did, how was that working as you made this major discovery here? Well, there was the, you know, as you, as you mentioned, there's the first reaction is, is to just to map as many of these, of yeah. these things as we could. I mean, it was very exciting to find that so many... Uh, thousands of kilometers of, of ancient trackways still survived uh, for us for us to map, uh, and this descriptive element is 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 interesting. And, and certainly, in my case, this was a good way to avoid the hard work of writing my PhD dissertation. <laughs> um, but ultimately, this isn't. We're not in this business just for description. We want we want to know what do these tell what do these features tell us about how people live their lives. This is precisely what you've what you've asked. Um, and my question was, if, if these trackways are showing this intensive movement of cultivators and, and, and herders, uh, what is driving this? Why are, people going, why are people going to such trouble to cultivate so much of the land? And I could think of two things. I could think of either the motivation comes from some great authoritarian power, you know, uh, great early dictators, and this is often a model that we bring to early uh, Mesopotamian cities. We assume that kings kings drive everything. Kings were forcing these foreigner these uh, these farmers to to cultivate, or uh, it could be have have been driven by some kind of a, a market based system. People were cultivating a lot because there was money to be made. Uh, so I looked into the cities at this point, and a lot of these have been excavated. We can look into a lot of palaces because you know we archaeologists we sure do love to dig palaces. Um, and to a lesser extent, we can look at some private houses uh, to see who's motivating this. And what I concluded from this review was I, I couldn't find any evidence that the, that the palaces were motivating this. There was no centralized storage. There was really no evidence of redistribution in these cities. So ultimately, I concluded that this, this, this agricultural economy on steroids that ran behind this, <laughs> this early... Uh, this early urban civilization was be- was being driven by the farmers themselves. Uh, it was not coming from the top down, but from the bottom up. Certainly, the people at the top were benefiting, but I couldn't find any evidence that they were either controlling it or driving it. So that's calling into question some of those traditional models that we've had about the organizations in the Middle East, that it really was a top-down society, 
and certainly no thanks to the archaeologists who were looking at in that way at things in that way for the very longest time until we sort of adopted an anthropological perspective that said let's let's see how the common people live in a way and you are sort of starting to get the type of information that will clarify that model that's 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 exactly right uh it, to some extent uh, uh, a landscape approach, that sort of the sort of broad regional approach that that I take, um, is is designed to kind of get beyond this sort of palace-based, elite-focused um, uh, perspective that that that's traditional with archaeology. We really do. We we love our celebrity magazines in the checkout aisle, and we archaeologists we love to dig the one percenters of the Bronze Age. Um, you know, I suppose this is understandable. You know, some some exciting loot comes out of these palaces, but I feel like we we miss bigger pictures about how society works when we when we focus that way. And really, to the credit, you know, and I'll say this, to the credit of American archaeology, there is that kind of perspective uh, as we use sort of an anthropological umbrella to do this sort of work. And I t- take it that you sort of got pretty much absorbed into that because you were looking at a model that really had not been structured before and, and you're starting to capitalize and, and work the details out as you're progressing with your work, right? That's, that's, that's right. Now, at, at the same time, the, the same sorts of remote sensing sources that I use can, can also be, <laughs> are, are fully capable of, of discerning exactly the opposite uh, landscape features that really do come from 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 the top down and and the the project that I I moved to more recently uh, instead of looking at emergent road networks created by farmers I've started to look at uh, great monumental irrigation systems that that we know were created by the by uh, commissioned by the great kings of the Assyrian Empire. And that, that's the project that I've, I've started on most recently. And we will get back with this fascinating discussion on our use of remote sensing imagery to enhance interpretations of early city-states and the emergence, the fluorescence, and ultimately the decline of these city-states after we take these messages. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein, uh, and we are talking about the application and the amazing advances in remote sensing imagery and uh, detection systems over the past 10 to 20 years and their application to um, the Middle East and to our earlier notions of how city-states evolved and how they grew and how their economies and social systems were structured based on some very, very provocative information that we were able to reconstruct or that my guest, Dr. Jason Ur is able to reconstruct based on these features that he's able to detect initially through uh, declassified uh, satellite imagery. Uh, and we were talking in the break about the necessity in many cases to confirm these observations and uh, inductive interpretations, if you will, on the basis of ground truthing, meaning if you find a feature from the air, from the satellite, let's put a hole into it and see what it really means. And with uh, the tremendous advances in both remote sensing imagery and geographic information systems, you're able to do this type of field checking very, very simply. Of course, now there's uh, a lot of uh, impediments to that because of geopolitics. But Jason, tell me a little bit about your earlier attempts, if there were some, to to do some ground truthing and to verify some of your suppositions and yeah. interpretations. Were you able to do that? Yeah. Well, this uh, this this issue of of ground truth and ground control it really really is a is an is an important one, and uh, uh, we. It, it may seem like when, if I, I say I've found something on a satellite imagery, I, I've found it, but really it's not until you get there on the ground that you really know exactly what, 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 you're, what you're looking at. And this is, really, this is really critical. I think probably most of your listeners have had the experience of maybe trying to find a store or some location on, on Google Maps or Bing Maps or something and looking at the image and not really knowing what, what exactly you're looking at. But then once you follow the directions and you, you, you arrive at this place, Something clicks in your head, and now you understand. Ah, oh, that's what I was looking at in the in this on the on the computer, uh, and this is what this is what I have to do. Uh, I can find strange-looking anomalies on the on satellite imagery, something that I think might be an archaeological site, um, but I'm not entirely certain what it is. I have to visit it. Now, um, I am talking about working in various parts of the Middle East, uh, Syria and Iraq, that we. Uh, we haven't always been able to get to very easily, we archaeologists, um, uh, but uh, certainly in, in, in currently in parts of northern Iraq, this is this is uh, it's now possible to visit these places on the ground. And so, uh, in some cases, places that I identified from satellite images ten years ago, I'm now able to visit them on the ground and to find out if I was right or not. 
And so uh, were you able to do that? How, how has your success been and were there any surprises in, in some of the ground truthing missions that you have done or have you, uh, what have you come up with? Well, uh, 10 years ago, I, uh, I did a, a, a purely remote sensing based study of the great irrigation systems that fed the, 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 the city of Nineveh. This was the capital of the Assyrian Empire of the, uh, around 700 B.C., uh, it's it today. It's it's in within the city of Mosul in northern Iraq. But this irrigation system that supported it was to its north, and and I studied this purely from satellite images. And I made lots of inferences about lines that I saw, but I had never been to this area. And ten years ago, this was not a place that that you could go. But ten years later, this is now the autonomous Kurdistan region of Iraq, and and I have been able to go to this place. It's, probably the last place in the Middle East where Americans are loved unreservedly. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I found that sometimes I was right, and I found that sometimes I was spectacularly wrong. <laughs> I don't usually talk about that second part. but uh, No, I, I understand, but it's important yeah. to understand, and I think that you can certainly, with all the experience you've had in the technology, start to fine-tune it and start to understand uh, is there any patterning to what you get right? Is there any patterning to what you get wrong? And I'm, I'd be curious to, to if, if milk your brain on that one. Certainly. So uh, this, is a, this is a recursive pro, uh, process whereby you make some inferences from the, from the image, you go on the ground and you, you correct yourself, then you can return to the satellite image and you can see even more things. You, you've, you've trained your brain, you've learned the, the, the signature. So in the area of the, the Kurdistan region of, of northern Iraq, where I'm currently doing a, a field project, uh, I found that uh, of the potential archaeological sites that I thought I'd found on spy satellite photographs, mm-hmm. uh, I was right 71% of the time. <laughs> and 29% of the time, I uh, was seeing things like geology. Uh, what I thought looked like a collapsed mud brick uh, settlement turned out to be uh, an area of, of river gravels or something else that looked deceptively like an archaeological site to me, but my brain hadn't really learned yet how to make that distinction. I'm, I'm better now. I've, I've had two years of practice, and I'm, and I'm much better, I have to say. <laughs> Sounds like you're in recovery here. <laughs> no, but, but, but I think one of the points that can be emphasized, and, and that's a pretty darn good track record, I would say, but if within that 29% you get features that, you can, that you're trying to interpret it to interpret on a really large scale, and those turn out that those turn out to be wrong, then you know your entire thesis can go haywire and, and, and thing. Well, as a result of this of this process, you know, I've what I've been talking about so far has uh, the, has consisted of me staring at my computer monitor where I have scans of these of these these satellite photographs, and and these they began their lives as film in the 1960s, so these look like. These look like black and white photographs. Um, but I found that um, uh, I was very subjective, even though I felt that I was looking at these very carefully. I was being very subjective. And, and since then, I've, I've moved in a, a different direction of dealing with um, what we would call multispectral satellite images. These are images that, uh, that can see beyond what the human eye can see, not just gray, black and white photographs, but they can see into the near-infrared part of the spectrum where... 
where I, our eyes can't see. And working with a colleague who's a computer scientist, we have began to train computers to do this in a far more uh, rigorous manner than what I could do just by staring at the screen. I mean, sometimes I get tired, but the computer never gets tired. Right. So you have, to some degree, you have a built-in series of, of checks on, on what you're observing, and, and you can look at this with, with that type of resolution, right? Uh, ask, could you ask me again? Yeah, no, no. You have, you have so much more capabilities with the multispectral imagery than you have with the black and white so that you can start to sort of get some patterning in here and, 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 sort of get, and get more resolution from a variety of different patterns, I'm assuming. I don't, I don't know. Including patterning that, that I, I can't see with my, with That's my what eyes. That's I mean. Yeah. Uh, w- what's been interesting is working with spy satellites from the 1960s uh, that is grayscale. Uh, it's just black and white. I can't tell the difference sometimes between geology and, 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 and an eroded uh, mud brick village. Um, but the, the modern imagery, it's great. It can see beyond what my eye can see. Uh, however, it's from today, and there's been 50 years since some of this corona, this, this spy satellite imagery has been taken. And even though this new imagery can see beyond what, what the human eye can see, it's looking at the modern landscape, and that's had 50 years to decay from the 1960s. And this has caused me to realize that you know, this, this, uh, this landscape work that I do uh, I'm, I'm really racing against time to some, to some extent. And the, the spy satellite images from the 1960s, limited though they may be in a, from a technical standpoint, they're almost like a time machine. And, then I, and even the, the multispectral imagery that takes me beyond my, my own eye, uh, it still can't go back in time like, like declassified spy satellites can. Yeah, that's true. But but what I, I think one of the interesting things that you have here is you have sort of a fifty-year window of site destruction or site mm-hmm. or patterned uh, devolution of the site, if you will. And you're allowed to you can look at that, and you can probably start to index that into your system and say, well, we've seen this before, and these are how I don't know mud brick villages erode, something like that. And and that that's that that is exactly what we see. We especially we see. Um, we see how they fall apart, and we see how uh, how they're likely to be taken apart. You know, throughout the the throughout the Middle East, but especially in in Mesopotamia, uh, these sites are made out of they're made out of the same material as 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 the fields that surround them. They're all made out of mud, and they go back to mud, which means that the local farmers c- can very easily uh, return them to cultivation. They can plow out these archaeological sites. So uh, this is one pattern that we're seeing since the 1960s is that increasingly, uh, as populations grow, there's pressure to, uh, to cultivate more land, and that includes a lot of the archaeological sites that, that, that need to be studied. Yeah, kind of like recycling. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate conservation ethic, I suppose, That's a, uh, doing that's that. That's a positive way of looking at it, I suppose, yes. <laughs> I think so. Um, so. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and, and uh, how, you, how, first of all, how, how your remote sensing technology is sort of helping you help guide your new projects, which you're talking about, that are occurring up in the Kurdistan region. Uh, right. So, I, as you mentioned, I'm now working in the Kurdistan region. This is an autonomous part of uh, the Republic of Iraq. Uh, it's it's run autonomously by the the Kurdish ethnic minority, and it it really has escaped all of the political violence, especially since about 2008. All of the political violence that that unfortunately um, uh, 
still prevails over the rest of, of, of that country. It is, however, uh, it does include some very rich plains which contain some, some important early civilizations that really have, have never been studied before. Um, and so I'm, I'm very fortunate to be beginning work in this, this part of Iraq that's, that's largely unknown. Um, and uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and it needs to be done fast. So uh, the satellite imagery is helping me find, uh, through these, these techniques that I've described, it's helping me find them quickly so that I can visit them on the ground quickly. This is especially important because the Kurdistan region is so safe compared to the rest of the, the country uh, of Iraq. Uh, it, it, it's, it's booming in its growth. It's, it's taking on internal refugees from the rest of the country. These people need places to live, and the cities of Kurdistan region are exploding, and as they do so, they're growing out over this unknown archaeology. So if I didn't have these satellite images basically to, to guide me very quickly to document these places, uh, they would be disappearing under the, under the, the growing cities of, of, of Kurdistan. And you're sort of a race against time for development and overcrowding and obviously changing demographics that are to some degree certainly the product of the war and and a variety of different factors over which you clearly have no control, right? Uh, no. I, what I can do, I have my academic questions and I'm, <laughs> I'm asking some of the same questions that we've already discussed about the origins of cities and uh, but also the impacts of the great early empires like, like uh, like the Assyrians. But in addition to these academic questions, I'm, I'm also uh, doing my best to document these sites as places of cultural heritage. Uh, they really de do need to be documented so that I can take this information to uh, the, uh, the authorities, the antiquities authorities in the, the Kurdistan region and, and, and to say to them, look, these are the places that are at risk from development, from, from urban growth. Um, you need to decide what, what will be done with them. Uh, and, and here's a case where the, the, the local authorities have to decide what's to be protected and what's, and what's not to be. Uh, the, the region is growing too fast for um, all of them to be preserved. Um, but these are, these are issues that face archaeologists everywhere on the planet. I think they're just particularly acute right now in, uh, in this northern part of Iraq. And we'll be back with our final segment in our discussion with Dr. Jason Orr after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com there are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Mm -hmm. 
Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein. We're back with uh, Dr. Jason Urer from Harvard University, and we are discussing the applications of remote sensing technology to understanding the uh, settlement geography and the general pattern of uh, early growth of cities and urbanism in um, in Mesopotamia, and uh, Dr. Ur has been doing some research in the Kurdistan area of northern Iraq and into uh, the areas covered by Syria and Turkey. And I was wondering, Jason, what uh, what kind of research you're doing right now and what kind of uh, questions you're trying to answer with your work? Well, uh, my, my current research is a, little sh- is a shift a little bit from, from the, the early cities that we began discussing. In, in fact, I'm using satellite images now uh, actually to look for villages. Um, and this research is being driven by uh, the uh, a hypothesis that we have about the earliest empires in this area. So about a thousand years after the origins of urbanism, this, this Kurdistan region of northern Iraq was a part of the core of the Assyrian Empire around, say, around 800, 700 BC. This is the center of an empire that stretched from Egypt into Turkey into Iran and included basically all of, of, of Syria and Iraq, um, based around cities on, that are today on the uh, Tigris, Tigris River. And uh, we know from royal inscriptions of these, of these kings and, and even from the Bible that these were fairly brutal people. Uh, the, the kings uh, conquered foreign lands and often uh, deported not just the able-bodied men, but entire villages and, and even in, in, entire countrysides, moved them out of the places where they'd been, they'd, they'd been defeated and brought them back to Assyria proper, where they were planted in the, the great capital cities, but also out in the countryside. And uh, so when the Assyrian kings talk about things in their royal inscriptions, you know, we know these are propagandistic, and uh, we, uh, we archaeologists, we kind of, we nod and think, okay, maybe, but let's take it with a grain of salt. Uh, but in the case of these great deportation events, these also show up in the Bible, in the, in the, in the Old Testament historical books. So uh, it's, it's quite likely there's something there. So my current project is actually looking to see if we can find a landscape signature of this 
uh, imperial top-down demographic engineering, if we can see a landscape that is full of small, evenly spaced villages, some kind of engineered demographic landscape, such as what we've seen described in these royal inscriptions and uh, in these biblical books. Um, we've, we've been out for a couple of seasons now, and so far, I think we're actually beginning to, to, to really get a positive response to this. So is this like an early stage of something akin to city planning or that kind of development in the system? It, it seems to be, it, it almost reminds me a bit of flying over uh, the Midwest where you see a, kind of a regular grid of roads and evenly spaced uh, little uh, settlements. You know, it, it looks to me like a very even uh, planned occupation of a, of a of an agriculturally rich landscape. I mean, if you if you are running an empire and you really want to maximize the the productivity of of your of the core of the empire in order to sustain their capital city, you would want to put labor out on the landscape in an even manner like this. So this is the pattern that we're looking for, and and we do seem to be beginning to find it. What kind of segments, landscape elements, if you will, are you seeing with that high-resolution imagery that you're getting right now? What kind of particulars? Let's get into a little more detail on that. Well, instead of the, the radiating patterns of tracks that we saw right. with the earliest cities, we're now seeing a combination of uh, monumental and, and, and then very small uh, irrigation systems. Uh, we're seeing 100-meter-wide, 8-meter-deep, giant giant canals cutting across the landscape, very clearly moving huge amounts of water. Uh, and these seem to be associated with uh, archaeological sites of this time of the Assyrian Empire. But at the same time, we're finding a lot of small, um, maybe four meter wide, very, very tiny canals that, that probably are tied to individual uh, villages. So we're seeing, again, kind of a, a, a what appears to us to be a, a very... Uh, intensively used landscape, but unlike the early Bronze Age pattern, where I've argued it was the farmers driving it, now I see top-down planning. I see this being driven by the, the plans of, of kings and, 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 and engineers at the time of this great Assyrian Empire. So you're looking at some kind of a major change, really, organizationally, uh, say, between the Bronze Period and where you're at. You're at 700 BC, so yeah. you're already into the Iron Age. Yes, this is Iron Age. Yeah. Uh, it seems to be very short-lived, though. Insofar as our initial results show, uh, this pattern of lots of small sites and big irrigation systems, it doesn't seem to outlast the, uh, the empire itself. So it could be a case where we've got, uh, I don't know, governmental overreach, if you want to put it into uh, maybe moder overly modern terms. <laughs> but it seems that this is a planned landscape that, that didn't survive its, its, its planners and for all I know, the uh, the deportees, these forced migrants, may have ultimately pulled up and gone home. Yeah, and there's obviously a whole bunch of questions there that that uh, are are keyed into that development, which you don't have the information for, but you certainly have to keep on digging, as they say, keep and on digging. Uh, <laughs> keep on digging and and uh, try to get that kind of information. Uh, where do you see the project going in the future, in the near term? Well, we have uh, we have many many thousands of square miles still to investigate, and um, uh, every year the the cities uh, the, the cities are growing out. So for the for the fourth for the coming years, we have a, another two years of National Science Foundation funding. We are going to be 
trying to document as many of these places as we can, both from satellite imagery and on on the ground. And ultimately, I, I would love to see some of these uh, some of these small villages excavated to see if we can find out what the lives were like of these potential deportees, these forced migrants from potentially very very far away. Um, I'm not certain that uh, I. I I'm not certain I would know what to do if I was actually forced to sit in a trench all day, but uh, I go where the questions, uh, the questions uh, send me, I suppose. But you've had field teams out there? Uh, so far, we've only been doing archaeological survey, but because so many of the neighboring countries are, are inaccessible, um, foreign archaeologists are, are really flocking to the Kurdistan region. I mean, there's, there's a push and a pull here. There's the, there's the push of... Um, Syria no longer being a safe place to work. But there's also the pull of this Kurdistan region of northern Iraq being basically terra incognita and, and with, with fascinating, fascinating emerging archaeology. And so, uh, so there's more work to be done, obviously, and uh, you have to sort of work where it's possible to do that. And I guess the remote sensing is something you can do irrespective of, what else, of whatever else happens, I guess, which is something that uh, is a strong argument for perfecting it and making it something that's really sort of going to be a mainstay for archaeological survey and uh, testing in the near future and going forward, I guess. No, I think that moment is here. At this point, nearly all archaeological projects uh, you have a kind of a, a, a baseline landscape approach that, that employs um, some sort of remote sensing. It really has become so easily accessible that it is it is now it really is a, a basic part of the of the archaeologist's toolkit and this will make me a little bit sad uh, this does make me a little bit sad because my specialty has become so <laughs> a little bit less special when everybody uses it but that's correct yeah uh, but at the same time um this kind of remote perspective and the information it brings um it's is is something that every project every every project needs and on that note, we're going to have to wrap this session up. It flew by, and I want to give my thanks to uh, Dr. Jason Irv, Harvard University, for spending this hour with us. And we will uh, be with you again next week with another episode. And in the meantime, stay and enjoy. Thank you. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.